brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to Tom Crewe, an editor at the London Review of Books and the author of The New Life, set in an unfamiliar Victorian England that will surprise and provoke. He's been listed by The Observer as one of the 10 best new novelists for 2023, and Douglas Stewart, author of Shuggy Bain, describes New Life as some of the best writing on desire I've read. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to him today. Tom Crewe, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here. So now we have a rough time scale of how long it takes to be an overnight success, and that's <laughs> 10 years, is it? <laughs> um, yes, that's that's about it. Um, I had the idea for the book 10 years ago, and here we are today. It's gone in a flash. <laughs> Why did it gestate over a decade? Well, it's actually, it's it sounds more tragic than it actually was in reality because I had the idea 10 years ago, but I was not at the desk for 10 years. I was, I was doing lots of other things. I had the idea and I was still finishing my PhD. So it was sort of just, you know, there it was on the back burner. I started doing a bit of reading, thinking. Then I got a job and that was very consuming and still I kept thinking, here's you know, there's that novel and every now and again I would pick up a book and think about it. I made two consecutive New Year's resolutions promising that this would be the year I started my novel and both times failed. So it was the third year uh, I thought I must I must do this now. So I actually started writing the book in 2017 and had a sort of finished version to send to publishers in 2021. So it was a four-year writing process, but a 10-year ordeal overall. Was it because you were busy doing other things, or was there a fear about starting it? I I, I do think it was busyness, but I, I think you're right to suggest there is always some trepidation because it was completely uncharted territory for me. It was... And maybe I'd invested almost too much in it because I'd always wanted to be a writer, you know, since I was a child and always kind of dreamed of writing a novel. So maybe it was the biggest test I was sort of heading towards my whole life, but maybe I was sort of delaying it because of fear of fear of failure. I mean, even when I used to write short stories, I started doing that a few years before I started on the novel. And I used to just leave out dialogue. I would try and write short stories minus dialogue because I wasn't sure I could do dialogue. So it really was, you know, the first day I put pen, virtual pen to paper, I just didn't know if I could do it. And and maybe it was a kind of desperation that finally drove me, drove me there. What did you find to being the key to unlocking dialogue? Well, in a way, it was just sort of taking the plunge. And once you started, I found that it was actually relatively straightforward. Though it is a mysterious process, because, of course, you are having a kind of conversation in your head. And I found that more interesting as as time went on, because I used to be quite dismissive of writers who sort of mystify about their characters. My characters have a life of their own. It's not me. They control me. They do the, They do what they want to do. And it's easy to sort of uh, be a bit sniffy about that. And what I arrived at in the end was not not really that your characters have a life of their own, so much as that you have invested your characters with sufficient life that their responses become obvious to you. You know what they're going to say next because there are so many ways they would not respond. You know all the ways they would not respond. So somehow that sort of 
provokes in you the characteristic response on on the part of your character. Um, that's on a good day. Obviously, there are also the days where you find yourself typing out cliches and you have to to go back and work out what's going wrong. O- often, I found that you can you can fall into a a kind of cliche dynamic between characters that they can end up talking like you've seen characters talk in the movies or you know a best friend wisecracking with their pal and you think where have I heard this this kind of rhythm before and you suddenly think it's from TV it's from film and then you have to go back and think no that's not how my characters would talk that's not intrinsic to them and to their relationship was the desire to have an authentic late 19th century english voice was that authenticity a wise counsel throughout or was there points at which it seemed it could be quite oppressive to become obsessed with exactly how they should sound and exactly the words they should be using? Well, I don't, I don't know if I thought about it that way. I, I actually spent most of the time writing the novel worrying that it would not seem like a very Victorian novel, that actually there was, there was not enough there to ground readers in the 19th century because I had made a decision that the best way to write this kind of novel was to write it not as if I was a 19th century writer, but as if I was someone who lived in the 19th century in the sense that I didn't want to notice things. I didn't want to point things out for an imagined contemporary reader. I wanted to write as though the environment of late Victorian Britain was axiomatic to me. So I wouldn't spend my time pointing out things to say, oh, look, here we are, we're in Victorian London. I would just say they got into a carriage. They, you know, If something was relevant to the story, that they had to get in a carriage to go somewhere, I would say they got into a carriage. But that was about as far as I was going in terms of trying deliberately to evoke a period atmosphere. So sometimes the book felt sort of almost too contemporary to me. And in terms of the speech too, I didn't... When writing the conversations between these characters, I was not thinking, oh, I need to make them sound like Victorians. I was, I don't know if I was deeper into it than that because I had spent such a long time uh, working on my PhD, which was about late Victorian Britain. I think in a way I had absorbed so much of the way in which 19th century people spoke and wrote that it was coming to me naturally, instinctively, rather than as a product of a lot of labour. Did a colleague remark on the fact that you speak (laughs) like a Victorian? (laughs) Yes, yes. One of my colleagues did, (laughs) one lunchtime, said, you know what, Tom, I finally cracked what is strange about you. It's that you've got these very formal Victorian ways of speaking. And uh, no one had ever pointed this out to me before. And and I don't don't really know what I'd said at lunchtime. You know, the, the repertoire was limited. But I do think I have absorbed even as a child I used to think I spoke like or in fact as a child I definitely deliberately tried to speak like P.G. Woodhouse Um, but uh, I do think it's somehow I have absorbed into my speech this is you know it's unhealthy to spend so much time in the 19th century is the is the lesson here. In what ways would you feel incredibly comfortable in the 19th century and almost pine for it from a modern sensibility? I respect the seriousness of the Victorians. We always use this word Victorian, but of course the 19th century only became Victorian in 1837 and Victoria's reign is so long that there are many phases in the 19th century. You have a very different sensibility in the 1850s than you do in the 1870s and certainly from the 1890s. It is that 
earnestness, that sincerity, a lack of embarrassment, I suppose, about taking life seriously and wondering what life is for. I mean, that's what my characters are always doing in this book. They are trying to work out what is the best way to live and and why we should be living in a particular way. And I think that's what so many of the great figures in the 19th century were discussing and exploring. And, if, and there's a stereotype which I hope I explode in the novel, which is that the Victorians were complacent and they were all about, you know, children in factories and terrible poverty and they didn't care and it was laissez-faire. But actually, I think it's much more characteristic of the Victorians that they were deeply energised and aggravated and despairing about their society, that they attacked their society with a zeal that um, we could do with attacking our society today. They were not afraid to to urge people to think differently and act differently. And, and that's very admirable, I think. And that conversation's contemporary between what is regarded to be, quote unquote, real activism and performative activism. And that was as relevant then. And also as well, how you live your life behind closed doors and what you wish to project to the world. And that's very much running through this book, isn't it? Yes, it, in some ways, it's one of the things that makes it a political book. I, I, ho I hope it's many other things as well, but I think one of the things that makes it a political novel is that it is directly engaged with those questions. You know, how do we act politically? How do we change our society? Is the best way to change our society by changing ourselves, by sort of perfecting ourselves as individuals, becoming less selfish or or more honest, more truthful? Or should we be instead focusing our energies on these kind of big structural institutional questions? You know, should we be at home being vegetarians and, and wearing sandals or should we be marching on the streets and trying to get into parliament? And those are still, as you say, the questions that energise us today. You know, do we try and combat climate change through individual behaviours? Or is that completely dwarfed by the impact of of big states like India and China and the states? And, and should we be focusing all our efforts actually on trying to create political change that will change things on a macro level? Those, yeah, those are the debates that are still running. And of course, those debates don't have to be seen in those terms either. It can be much more about personal experience. Is it better to stay in the closet in 1894 and protect your family, protect the reputation of your children, your wife? Or should you be trying to, in a way, come out, change society for gay people like yourself at great personal risk? Um, that becomes a kind of personal question in, in my novel. And that that is still political, but it's political on a different plain, as it were. And what of the question, is it acceptable to hurt those closest to you in order to change the world? Well, again, this is, <laughs> this is um, I mean, one of the things about writing my novel is that I, I was in the fortunate position in a way of, of just posing questions, allowing my characters to pose questions through their personal dramas and actually to challenge readers to pick a side or to, or to actually engage in multiple perspectives and, and see through various people's eyes and, and wonder how they would act and who is acting correctly. And, and maybe the reason I was able to do that was because I find these questions incredibly difficult to, to answer. I can completely see the way in which it is at various points necessary to hurt your family or hurt the people around you 
for a greater social good, but that doesn't mean it's uh, going to be easy for you to do that or that there are not going to be consequences. And of course, that greater good, that greater societal good might not arrive. So these are the kind of great um, anguishing dilemmas um, I just leave my readers and my characters to face while, uh, while sitting back at my desk. Through the course of writing 368 pages, though, did the questions change at all? Did your judgments change at all? I think all, all the time, you know, almost almost every day, part of being a novelist is hopefully being able to enter into many different points of view and to resist simplicity. You know, I talked about cliche earlier on, but resist cliche, resist simplicity, resist the obvious, always look deeper, try and find complexity and nuance. And that means that you were always pushing yourself, almost morally, I know that sounds very grand, but to to constantly consider how someone else might arrive at a particular decision or view and the reasons that might underlie a a decision which on the surface might seem objectionable. So as you evolve a, a novel, you are, you are constantly having to balance different people's perspectives and, and desires and wishes and ambitions against each other. And that does mean that you hopefully evolve a kind of complicated world in which lots of different views are legitimate and possibly conflicting. So yes, as I, as I went on, certain characters' situations became clearer to me, their motivations became maybe not just clearer, but more suspect or more honourable. And I think in my novel, there is a move through the novel. And I think you are encouraged to change your view of certain characters. And I think I found myself seeing the character of John, who is this gay man sort of breaking out of the closet at the end of the 19th century, but risking all these terrible consequences. I think I encourage my reader as well as myself to see him in a, in a more complicated light, to, to not take the kind of morally simple view of him only being this gay man in, in the closet and that being such a difficult position, but actually seeing the ways in which his behaviour is very harmful. And similarly, my character of Henry became more likeable to me as the, as the novel went on and I found myself becoming more sympathetic to his situation. So in that sense, your characters may still be under your control, but they are not fixed in your mind. You, you develop a perception of them all the time. Was it, though, always going to be the case that John would become more challenging to the reader as the story went on? No. I wrote the novel without a plan, without, <laughs> without any plan at all, which came back to haunt me later on. But I, I used to write a chapter and then I would stop and think, what should happen in the next chapter? And I just proceeded like that for years. So no, the way John's character was going to develop was not obvious to me at all. And I suppose that's what I mean. As things went on, as I had to concentrate on his relationships with other characters, seeing how his decisions created circumstances and that other people had to deal with and found myself working out how he was responding to these circumstances, he became more complicated. And I think it was actually a logical, if I'd been able to think about it this way, I think it is a logical consequence of his position because a man living in a 
homophobic society and institutionally homophobic country at the end of the 19th century will not be able to do the things he wants to do, change the law, change what society thinks about this subject, risk publicity. He will not be able to do these things without severe difficulty and severe emotional consequences if he also is married with children. So in a way, the situation, the historical setting actually created that dynamic. He had to become more challenging and potentially dislikable because that's the way his society made him. It was not possible for him to be a good guy all the time. Tom, how did you come across the book Sexual Inversion? And how did you feel once you started to read it? I first came across it as mentioned in a biography of John Addington Simmons, who is the historical inspiration for my character of John. But I don't think I read it. As I say, it's a, it was a long process. I probably didn't read it for another three or four years because this thing was very much on the back burner. I mean, it's a book put together in the early 1890s, though for complicated reasons it wasn't actually published until 1897. But I think the core of the book are these case studies. Addington Simmons and his collaborator, Havelock Ellis, who is the basis for my character, Henry, put this book together and they collected personal testimony from, I think, about 25 gay men. And they just sort of put this information, the responses, they sent out questionnaires and they put the responses into their book. And so what you have at the centre of the book are these incredible sort of mini autobiographies of these 25 gay men and they're all anonymous. We know who about three or four of them are, but most of them are anonymous. And they're just completely fascinating records of these gay lives. So they're, they're men talking about their adolescence, when they first developed sexual feelings, when they first masturbated, when they first had sex, what kind of sex they enjoy, with what kinds of men, who were they attracted to. And it's just such an unexpected insight into the Victorian period, I suppose, because we we assume that all this stuff you know, as was often the case, is sort of all hidden or letters were burned or people were living in secrecy. And of course, a lot of that was going on. But here we have these incredible records that just offer a sample of lives lived and with a level of sexual candour, which you are not going to get in many other places. And I think one of the other fascinating things about these 25 studies is that none of these men were in trouble with the law. You know, that certainly at that time, none of them report ever being arrested or having any trouble. In fact, several of them actually talk about, you know, having sex with policemen and actually, you know, really quite fancying policemen. That also challenges us to kind of reconceptualize what might be our stereotypical view of the period, that this maybe wasn't the most terrible time ever to be gay in, in history. These men mostly seem to be able to be living lives in private, finding partners, finding sex, and, and getting on without getting into trouble. And of course, most gay men at the end of the 19th century never did get into trouble. Most people were not Oscar Wilde. And I think that's a very important thing to to try and remember. You know, it was not all doom and gloom. It wouldn't have been easy, but it also, it's not all tragedy and, and martyrdom. But that's interesting because, what, five decades later, Alan Turing takes his own life because the state won't allow him to be who he wants to be. 
And of course, I, you know, I don't mean to suggest that it was easy for everyone or that, you know, all of these people endured difficulty and, and had their options narrowed. And in fact, one of the moving things about the book is that most of these men say that they are happy being gay, that they don't want to change, they don't want to be straight, but they just wish they could live more open lives and that they didn't feel compelled to, to live in secret or feel compelled to marry women because that was their only route to respectability or, you know, getting on in their profession. But I actually think the Turing example is is relevant because the 50s, the 1950s, was the worst decade to be gay in Britain. I mean, that's the time you have the most arrests, you have the most aggressive campaign on the part of the British government to penalise and punish homosexuals. We shouldn't see this as a kind of steady climb to acceptance. There are actually, uh, you know, peaks and, and troughs. And the 20th century, I think, overall was a harder time to be gay in Britain, partly because visibility increased. The more people knew about homosexuality or discussed it or the more scandals there were, people can be targeted, people can be noticed. There is a larger language of abuse, for example. You know, I sometimes semi-facetiously say that the 1980s might have been a, a harder time to be gay than the 1890s. Yeah, yeah, without question. Even if you leave AIDS out of it, I, certainly if you put AIDS in, it certainly is a harder time. But even if you leave AIDS out, you've got a nationally homophobic culture with the press and and that is a consequence of visibility rather than invisibility or, or the ability to pass without being seen. So yes, it's definitely not a sort of inevitable story of progress. It's a murky picture. In writing the novel, could you be absolutely immersed in this world and this period? Or were there elements throughout it where you were kind of being asked by the writing to think about the world we live in now? I don't think actually I did do much thinking about the here and now. I mean, in a direct sense, I don't think I ever thought, I certainly wasn't deliberately drawing any parallels or or winking at the reader because I was so committed to that historical moment, to trying to bring alive that moment and the kind of lived reality of my characters. But that doesn't mean that my world in the 2020s was not leaking in. And I think the book is, you know, I, I know there are moments in the book that reflect moments in my life, certain mood, you, you know, I, I sort of fell in love halfway through writing the book and I think some of the kind of the feeling between John and Frank is sort of inflected by my feeling at the time or took on a new sort of intensity maybe because of how I was feeling at the time and I think actually some of those big sort of strategic questions we were talking about earlier how do we fight for change what's the best way of doing it do we do we take it steady do we take big risks I think actually that also reflected the political moment I was living through. I, it occurs to me that this was a novel being written in the sort of Jeremy Corbyn years of the Labour Party, you know, which all these questions were being asked, you know, what is the best way to deliver change? Is it by being a radical left-wing party that breaks with the consensus and takes bold departures and appeals to the public in a new way? Or should it be, you know, steady, steady wins the race. We've got to accommodate different, you know, groups and tailor our message more carefully. And so I think in that sense, the book is reflects the time it was being written. It's sort of 
unintentionally, I think I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but I think it is unconsciously took on board some of that contemporary moment. Um, congratulations, by the way, trying to grow a new relationship while trying to write a debut novel. That can't be easy time-wise, I can imagine. <laughs> no, it did, did get in the way somewhat, yeah. Um, who was the first family member to see a manuscript to the book? There was no family I mean, My boyfriend saw the manuscript first. I mean, when I when the book was submitted to publishers, it had only been read by two people, my my boyfriend and my agent. So I didn't I I certainly didn't rush to to hand it over to a member of my family. And in fact no, no member of my family read the book until until it was in proof, you know, with a proper proof copies. He read an early draft which he gave some very good feedback on, you know, which was actually very useful, particularly about the character of of Henry, I think. I think Henry is was a difficult character to write because he is naturally shy and retiring and and doesn't like speaking very much which is quite hard for a novelist to <laughs> to convey a character with those traits so my boyfriend duncan was quite useful in trying to encourage me to find better ways of bringing that character out because i think henry's situation as part of this sort of open marriage with two women is intrinsically interesting and it was important to try and wrestle with the implications of that so that was very helpful and when I did the second sort of full draft and my boyfriend read it again he was much more positive and was very 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 kind about it so and my agent was very useful as as well he also pushed me down some new avenues and encouraged me to change the title of the book so the, the book's title was changed at the last minute and that was all my agent's idea. What did you want to call it? Well it was originally called and it was called this for years and years you know long before I started writing it in this 10-year period it was originally called inversion you know because inversion being the being the word for homosexuality at the end of the 19th century this book that John and Henry are writing sexual inversion and it also seemed to me to to offer a kind of governing motif for the for the book because in a way John and Henry are are inverted versions of each other or they're in inverted or mirrored circumstances we you know John is a gay man married to a straight woman Henry is a straight man married to a gay woman and the book has lots of mirrored moments throughout there are lots of scenes that are sort of played in reverse there are lots of golden nuggets for readers to spot if they want to. So all that was there and it was very actually very useful to have this big this big governing idea inversion. But my agent quite rightly pointed out that it sounded a bit sci-fi, a bit negative, a bit inception and uh and he said, you know, what about something about the new life, you know, new life, a new life? And I said, oh maybe the new life. And it was sort of decided in about 30 seconds you know it had had one title for nine years and then suddenly it had a new one and we were all actions go um how did you navigate the intersectionality or lack of between john's experience as a gay man and edith's experience as a lesbian how did you begin to construct that i think the big thing to bear in mind straight away was the illegal difference in, in those circumstances that when my book starts in 1894, male homosexuality is is illegal, but female homosexuality is not. So you could legally be a lesbian, 
in a way that you could not legally be a gay man. But of course, there was a massive social stigma attached to being a lesbian, and it's certainly not something you would be advertising. So that was the first big distinction. And then, of course, there is a, the sort of secondary issue, which is that women, because they were permitted to live together and, and have a sort of greater degree of intimacy, female friendship was sort of accepted in, in a way that male friendship was not, you know, accepted in an intimate way, that it was actually more possible to, to live a lesbian life sort of semi-openly and... So that becomes a consideration too, that John is sort of desperately trying to break into the open, trying to express something that he feels he has not been able to express, whereas Edith and her partner, Angelica, actually have a lot of the world in their hands. They can almost live the life they want to lead as it is. So they have a different kind of imperative. And that's perhaps why Edith in the end is not as sympathetic to John as their shared circumstances might suggest. Though Angelica feels differently. She sees the importance of this shared status that actually, you know, no gay woman will be truly free until gay men are. You know, that actually the great issue is overcoming this this social stigma. It's not so much about the law as about trying to find a kind of social recognition, a kind of validity in, in public. What about the freedom that John has in terms of being able to move a man into their environment and what that does to Catherine, his wife? Well, this is another good example of this intersectionality, I suppose, this way in which different kinds of identity or oppression connect. Because, of course, I've just said in a way John has a harder time than than Edith, but of course, by virtue of being a man, he has a different set of prerogatives and freedoms that he can exercise. So he is freer in some ways uh, than Edith, simply by, by virtue of being a man. And he's certainly freer than his wife, Catherine, who is herself less free than Edith because she's you know a married woman. She's in her 50s. She's, she's of a different generation. She's, she's living a kind of respectable upper middle class life. So there we see a clear tension between what we might see as gay rights and, and women's rights. We see the limits of that solidarity between gay men and women. You know, they are both oppressed, but to what extent? And, you know, it's just not easy. And and that's something I wanted to bring out all through the novel, the, just how complicated it was. And of course, it comes back to that question of how you feel about John in the book. It's crucial for me that we recognise that a homophobic society, first of all, meant that John got married when he shouldn't have done, and, and he regrets that, and he knows that's been bad for him and for Catherine. But it's also meant that it's impossible for him to try and change his circumstances, to try and live his own true life without hurting his wife, Catherine. And that's... A homophobic society therefore hurts women as much as men, that it is in fact a universal problem. It is a kind of social blight that is hurting all kinds of people in society. And that doesn't excuse John's behaviour. It just, in fact, I hope, draws our attention to this bigger issue about the society men and women are living in. You know, homophobic, misogynist, patriarchal society is not going to be good for anybody.
One thing that we always do, Tom, on the Penguin Podcast is ask our very special guests to bring a few things for us to talk about. Now, the first of your objects is a copy of The Hobbit. Tell us why you wanted to include this. It's one of my earliest memories. I uh, had been told about this wonderful book called The Hobbit by my dad, and he had promised to bring it home for me from the school library. My dad was a teacher, so, and maybe it shows what a sort of strange child I was, but I was so intensely excited about this book that my dad was going to bring home. And he came home from work and he had forgotten to to pick up the book. And I was absolutely devastated. I remember crying and kicking and screaming. And he promised that the next day he would he would definitely remember, he would definitely bring it. And I remember conversely this kind of incredible joy of when this book came into the house and i've got it in front of me and it's this i've still got this book it never went back to the library quite shamefully and it became this book we started reading it together every night my dad and i what was i maybe five six and uh, there was one night where my dad was away and he couldn't read the book with me and i said well what am i going to do and he said you're just gonna just try and read it yourself and so The Hobbit became the first ever book that I sat on my own and, and read. And I can remember exactly the passage in the book that I read. And I can remember that feeling of being sat in my bed on my own and starting to read this book. So it's a very special memory and it feels sort of symbolic as an opening to my journey into into reading, which has been the greatest pleasure of my life and still and still is. Now... I'm always intrigued by Prince obsessives moving on to your second object because he does elicit this obsession in people who really try and understand who he was and his work. So from his huge canon of work, of which, of course, probably we're still yet to hear many, many hours worth of, why if i was your girlfriend by prince <laughs> well it's an it's another my dad's going to be thrilled when he hears this because it's another sort of dad memory my dad got me into prince prince is one of his favorite artists and i got prince's great very cool dad yes there, very cool there, dad there, there you go yeah. though, yeah. though it didn't feel very cool it was not believe me it was not very cool to be a prince fan uh, in the late 90s early noughties as a school child it was not seen as very as very cool and uh, and so my dad got me into Prince and he got me the greatest hits for my 10th birthday. And I just became completely obsessed. And then I, having sort of been engaged in this way, I, I started exploring his vinyl collection and I found all his Prince records and I started recording them all onto tape. And the way it had to be done then, I had to sit next to his record player, recording them onto tape and be there to turn the turn the record, turn the tape over. So I spent a lot of time on my own, sort of listening to these albums through, sat there as a sort of 10, 11, 12-year-old. And I often would look at the lyrics on the on the back of the vinyl sleeve. And I was I remember being very struck at the time by this song, If I Was Your Girlfriend. It's such a strange song. It's a the basic concept is that Prince is he's sort of addressing a a lover who's dumped him and he's saying, if I was your best friend, if I was a female friend, you know, would that have made things better? I could do all these things with you. I could help you pick out your clothes before we go out. And 
and uh, and it's about this sort of trying to reclaim this intimacy which has been denied to him as a lover but a friend would get to see and and know and i think that that in itself is an interesting idea a sort of novelistic idea but i've always remembered the line where he says would you run to me if somebody hurt you even if that somebody was me and it's always it's always seemed such an interesting meta idea that prince is both the friend and the somebody who might be hurting this this lover this is probably far too complicated but it i just remember sitting there and reading these lyrics and finding them so challenging and interesting and surprising and i somehow associate prince for that reason with with me writing with becoming interested in in certain kinds of fiction because I was such a prince obsessive, much more of a prince obsessive than a reading obsessive, or a, I was much more obsessed with prince than with any writer. And so I think he was the person sort of opened up the world of words to me and what they might mean and what they could be made to do and what stories you might be able to tell. So that song in its strangeness, its surprisingness always has a special place in my heart. Now, you come out age 21 and there is a sartorial statement that is made, and this forms your third object. Tell us about this sartorial statement that you made as you came out age 21, Tom Crew. Well, my uh, my third object is a pink jacket. I'm not sure the pink jacket really exists anymore. I don't know where it is. And it's, it sounds like it's got a more direct relationship with coming out than it, than it actually does. The fact that it was pink in a way does not reflect the fact that I'd come out as gay. It was more that I'd always struggled so much with my sexuality and, and had sort of almost sealed myself off from the world. I'd become very neutral. I just didn't engage with the world on a sort of sexual level. I didn't feel like I fancied anyone. I didn't know that I fancied anyone. And I certainly didn't think about anyone fancying me. And when I came out, I finally, after this sort of torturous process, when I finally came out, it was like I just sort of went through puberty for the first time. Like I'd, like I'd avoided the whole thing and then suddenly it hit me like a ton of bricks. And so I suddenly became interested in clothes because I actually cared about what people thought about me. I, I wanted people to fancy me all of a sudden. And so therefore I completely overhauled my wardrobe and the pink jacket is symbolic of that because it was just such a bold statement. It seemed to sum up to me the new kind of person I was, not this person who was slouching around in, you know, old grubby clothes because I didn't care what anyone thought of me, but someone who was going to wear something so dramatic and bold because I wanted people to notice me for the first time. So that felt like a big psychological change and the pink jacket, you know, did all the work. Do you, and I'm asking this question as a straight man, do you envy those who were able to come out that much earlier? Because 21 is, I mean, you've been through a lot by the time you get to 21. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I remember even at the time thinking it was a shame because I'd gone through my whole undergraduate years without being able to, you know, have a good time or, or, or meet people or, you know, I, as I say, I'd sort of sealed myself off from everything because I was, I'd, well, you know, I was very repressed. And so, yes, it's a, it's a great loss. And you think, well, and all this anguish of being a teenager and all the self, 
doubt and worry. Of course you wish you'd avoided all that. And of course it's wonderful now to think that someone might be coming out age 13 or 12 or whatever, or, or might have the confidence to even sort of speculate on that openly, publicly, or with their parents. Or That's a huge social change and something that's just so positive. Though I think, you know, there was always this thing said that when homosexuality was legalised, certain gay men said, oh, it's not the same anymore. You know, it was so exciting doing it all in secret and, you know, cottaging and, oh, you know, it's lost all its mystique. And I think it's um, it's easy to to feel the pull of saying something similar about coming out, that it's such an experience. It's such a way of going through the world and then emerging suddenly in a new form that it does give you a certain, it is a certain experience that you almost think, well, you know, I'm almost glad I had it because it teaches you things about yourself and about life and about gender. And so you sort of in a crustyish way think, oh, is it maybe too easy now? Is there something you can get out of the, the tension? But of course, it's definitely better. It's definitely better that, better, better not to have that. Um, so I'm very pleased other people won't have to go through the same thing. But Having interviewed as you know so many gay men, so many have told me over the years that they knew very young who they were. You know, I mean, primary school age, they knew. It's true that you um, certainly when I came out to myself, it was the first time I consciously allowed myself to to think about it. But it was like I'd switched on a light bulb that was hanging over my entire life, and the light penetrated all these far reaches of my life, and it did make sense of things I'd felt when I was say six, eight, certainly 10, you know, certainly pre, pre-pubescent, pre which is hard to to understand. You know, it, it made sense of my whole relationship to the world, which might have been so unconscious, subconscious, but that I always felt slightly at a tangent from from my friends. And so it, it, it certainly has that effect. Object number four, not quite as cool as a pink jacket, but very, very worthy for you. Uh, a folder of emails. There you go. When you ever start a sentence off with a folder of emails, you never <laughs> think it's going to be that exciting. But this, of course, is to do with your job at the London Review of Books, isn't it? Yes. When I was putting this list together that very afternoon, I had happened to come across this folder of emails I had made when I was migrating, you know, emails between systems. And the folder was called Mary Kay. And it includes all the emails I received from the then editor of the London Review of Books, Mary Kay Wilmers, over the sort of six or so years we were working together. You know, she was my boss and she's now retired, but she had been the editor of the LRB for 40 years, thereabouts. And she was such an inspirational presence in in my life. She is an amazing woman and she was an amazing editor and she was editing the LRB into her 80s. And I'd never seen anyone with so much dedication to their work and to the sort of craft of of writing, you know, turning sentences into good sentences. She really believed in the mission of the LRB. And when I joined the LRB, she really believed in in me and gave me my first opportunities as a writer writing for the public. A few times I would say something in the office, you know, maybe we should have a piece about X. And she would characteristically say, well, you do it. And when you've just arrived and you're the intern, you know, making the coffee and the editor of the LRB says, well, you go and write about 
the state of the Labour Party. Uh, it's just an incredible vote of confidence. And I, I responded so much to to those opportunities and it gave me a, a profile. It allowed me to become a different kind of writer. You know, the reason I got an agent in the first place was because they read something I'd written in the LRB and, and Mary Kay gave me all that. And so looking through these emails and seeing all the back and forth and all her ideas for pieces and things we should do and her complete commitment to literature and, and to its importance in the world is uh, is very moving and, and important for me. So I wanted to recognise her significance in my life. And lastly, pictures above your writing desk. <laughs> well, I have various pictures above my desk, some of which are of writers. The writers there, there is a picture in a frame in a special position of Henry James, but it's, importantly, it's the young Henry James because I didn't want to be intimidated by late Henry James. It was it was important to remember that even Henry James started off as a as a young cadet. So um, I like looking at the young Henry James with his beard and think, you know what, everyone's got to start somewhere. That gives me that gives me hope. I'm not comparing myself to him in any way, but he has something else in common with the other writers there. So the other writers I have above my desk are Anthony Trollope. Margaret Oliphant and George Gissing, and they were all massive producers. They produced incredible bodies of work and they worked incredibly hard and wrote a lot of novels. I mean, Margaret Oliphant wrote 98 novels, Trollope wrote 48 novels, Gissing must have written, I don't know, you know, bordering on 30, so did James. And that too is a sort of encouragement because I I just don't want to take another 10 years. So so I um, I look at them and think, well, look, you can't sit here anguishing over every sentence and you've got to keep going and you've got to produce, produce, produce. You know, Salman Rushdie said a quite moving thing about Martin Amis the other day, you know, he left behind a shelf of books and we've lost him, but we've still got the shelf. And I, I look at these writers and I think, well, you know, they've created shelves of books and I would like to try and create a shelf of books. And you won't do that by sort of being costive and 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 taking fifteen years to write every every book. So it encourages me to to attack the page. I'm not sure it works, by the way, but it's that's what they're there for. They're meant to uh, they're meant to encourage me. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, thank you so much, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a conversation with you today, and I'm so glad that you could join us on the Penguin Podcast. Thank you. And thank you for listening wherever you are. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Tom's work, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts, where you'll find compelling conversations with authors from Margaret Atwood to Benjamin Zephaniah. Dip in, see what you find. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I'll see you next time.